Good morning. For those of you who've been in my class, we are going to change things up a bit, and we're going to go chapter by chapter through the book of James. Uh, I talked about this last week, and um, through studying this book, I realized there's a, a lot more meat there, so we're not going to get through the whole chapter this week. Uh, part of it's for time's sake. So I want to want us to focus on the first eight verses this week. Now, before we start, let's talk just a little bit about James and this letter that he wrote. The book of James is a very challenging book, and as far as writing styles go, his style may be my favorite. James is the kind of man that I would ask to speak at a men's conference. He's, um, he's very to the point. There we go. Um, he doesn't waste any time, and he kind of challenges you to get after it. Now, this is a very challenging book to the flesh. It's so challenging, in fact, that Martin Luther himself fought for it to be excluded in the Bible. And James is widely believed to be the half-brother of Jesus. Many passages of Scripture back this up. Um, we, we know that he is highly esteemed in the early church at the time of uh, the writing of this letter. But we also know that he didn't originally believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, we can get into all of that at a later time, um, and I'd like to, but there, just for the sake of time, I think maybe maybe each week as we're going through James, maybe we'll cover another um, kind of interesting fact about him. But for time's sake, let's go ahead and uh, jump right into the scriptures. Now, I'm reading out of New King James, so uh, make sure you... Uh, Follow along or fact check me, please, um, that I'm not telling you something that's not accurate. <clears throat> so verse 1 says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Let's pause right there. Uh, I want to point out a couple of things. First, notice that he didn't introduce himself as Jesus' brother. Um, he didn't introduce himself as some authority in the church, but as a bondservant. His identity is solely on his servanthood of Christ. You know, he, he could have came out and said, Listen, I, I, I can speak with some authority because I am the half-brother of the Messiah. But he doesn't. He actually... He actually does something that we don't see very often in a leadership-type position, which we talked about last week, which is he he humbles himself. He makes himself lower, right? He brings himself down to the same level of the people who he is writing to. And then he says, To the twelve tribes scattered abroad, greetings. <clears throat> now, he's speaking to the Jews here who are scattered now because... When the persecution became so great, they had to run for their lives and disperse. Um, you can read all about this in Acts chapter 8. And this is what I was talking about. He's not wasting any time. He doesn't spend an entire page on his greeting or puffing them up. He gets straight to the point. He, he gives himself the authority and credibility to... Um, 
to write this letter and for them to listen. And then he gets straight into it. So verse 2, he starts out, my brethren. There it is again. He He's including himself. He's not saying my constituents or subjects or anything like that. He's saying my brethren. And then he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Notice James says when you face trials, not if. You see, he's eliminating the idea that you might not have to go through these trials. He's not saying, you know, hang in there uh, while this trial is going on. He's not saying to simply endure a trial, but he's actually saying to count it all joy. Now think about that for a minute. Most people consider it a joy to get through a trial, but James is instructing us here to count it all joy to endure a trial. So in the midst of the trial, we are to count it all joy, right in the thick of it. You know, most people consider it a joy to get through a trial. But James is instructing us here to count it all joy while enduring it. And most people tend to cry out to God to get them through trials their entire life. You know, um, you'll be going through something and, and, and it's difficult and it stings and you'll beg God through your prayers, you know, deliver me from this. But how many of us can actually praise him in the middle of it? How many of us can thank him for the trial? And and how can you, you know, that's that's the question. So you're telling me we're supposed to count it joy when we're going through something difficult? And not just something difficult. I mean, we can talk some severe cases here, but how can you count it joy when you're suffering? Well, he tells us over in verse 3. It says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. He's telling us to count it all joy, perhaps even to petition to God to immerse ourselves in trials so that we can experience the joy in total dependence on Christ. Now, I've actually talked about this um, before. If you were in this class or you watched uh, online, you'll, you'll know that what I'm talking about here. We're talking about trials. And if you've sat in uh, any of the sermons lately or Noah Walker's class, or it, it, there's kind of been this recurring theme, which I think is, is funny because none of us have gotten together and talked about it. But, but there seems to be this theme there um, going through these trials, and it's because we all deal with them. But if you notice, the times that we face trials seems to be the times that we experience the most growth. Yet we seem to immediately beg God to deliver us from it. Now, I don't want to hit too much on what I talked about a couple of weeks ago, Um Make sure that you you go back and check out, I believe it's the uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life lesson. Um, But but have you ever noticed that, that that when you're going through something that just tears you apart, 
that it reveals your true heart and character. And that we know that when we face those trials, that when we're going through those things that are extremely difficult and stressful, that's really when we see the most amount of growth in our faith. And yet, that, I mean, as soon as it comes on, as soon as it's an inconvenience to us, we're pleading with God for Him to take this cup from us. You know, it's, it's easy to cling to Jesus when things are good, but it's a lot more difficult when the world seems to be falling apart around you. And it's actually this testing that's making you stronger and more steadfast. You know, he says in, in verse 3 right there, if you look, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You know, other translations say, for you know. You know that you experience growth in these times, yet we still hate experiencing it, you know. Um, so so let's, let's look at verse 4 here. He says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing let's talk about this testing this testing is something that God wants to use for the good of our lives and most likely what we're facing today doesn't compare to what they were facing back then to whom he was writing to so this term testing is a real interesting term because it's actually a term that silversmiths would use where they would test silver. Uh, And the way that these silversmiths would test it is that they would put a bunch of silver in a pot and they would heat it up with this intense fire. And then at a certain temperature, all of those impurities in the steel or uh, in the silver, uh, they called it the droughts, they would it would rise to the surface so they would heat it up and it would start melting and then and then it would all this impurities would rise to the surface and what they'd do is they would scoop it up and then they would discard it right and then they'd let it cool let it harden give it some rest and then they'd heat it back up and they would do this over and over and over um, until the silver was tested or pure right this is the same word the same greek word And the way they knew that this silver was tested or now pure is that they would look into the pot and the silversmith could see, excuse me, his own reflection in the silver. So the idea of trials, the idea of these trials is God is testing us, purifying us. He's purifying us more and more until you and I become the image of Christ. Now, I actually talked about this over in that same lesson, so please go check it out. I don't want to get too, uh, you know, I don't want to backtrack, but um, when I talked about um, the uh, blacksmiths tempering steel, he does the same thing with us, right? So, so if God here in this, in this uh, metaphor is the silversmith, he puts us, his belonging, you know, what's his, under this immense fire, which is trials, to burn away any of the chaff, any of the worthlessness, any of the impurities. And what does he do with it? 
he rids us of it. And there's this idea here with sin. I mean, if you think about a particular sin that you are struggling with, you're like, well, if I will just, you know, do this, this, and this, and this, and this, that that I won't do that thing anymore. But it's really God transforming your heart to no longer desire those things. That's what the sanctification is. And he does that again and again and again. He's going to continually do that. He's going to put us under the heat. And then right when, you know, right when he gets rid of part of those impurities, he's going to give us just a little bit of rest so that he can do it again until he sees his own reflection through his son, Jesus Christ, in us. So he's going to do that here in our life now. So if we want our faith to grow, you know, we... we lead with God when it comes to um, like our prayers when we're praying we're asked that God would give us these things and, and purify us and sanctify us but just know that if you want that faith your faith to grow if you want your faith to deepen if you want to become more like Christ then you should expect to be put under the purifying fire that is trials that's what God wants he wants you to be a reflection of him because it's not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that, that God chastens us and corrects us because now that we're his, he wants us to be holy. So here in verse 4, James is, is so compelling because he's saying that it's not enough to just say that you're a Christian. It's not enough to just say that you are. In fact, uh, we'll see as we read on that if the fact that you say you're a Christian doesn't impact your conduct or it doesn't impact the way that you live, then it's fake. The faith that should be genuine, true, active, living, and fruitful is real faith. And any faith that isn't genuine, true, active, living, and fruitful is false. All of these books after the four Gospels um, seem to have this recurring theme. And it's that if Jesus Christ has come into your life and he hasn't changed you and he hasn't changed me, then it doesn't say much about Jesus. You know, this isn't about legalism or earning salvation Uh, not saying that you're going to be so good that God decides to love you, but he's saying that Jesus is so powerful that he doesn't just make you a little bit righteous, but he makes you completely righteous, and Jesus will come and justify your spirit. And when he does, it ought to radically change who you are. You know, we've talked about... um, those of you who were fortunate enough to grow up in the church and to always believe, we actually talked about this uh, last week in in person in class, and um, you know that change isn't as pronounced with those people. Uh, I mean, I, I look at my wife, for example, or or you know uh, Noah or Cameron or our pastor Josh Garmy. You know, you look at some of these people. <clears throat> that grew up in the church and 
it doesn't really look like a whole lot has changed. But if you ask them, the change was more inward, right? So it should radically change who you are over a period of time. Um, I'm sure if, if you're watching um, and you know, you probably know me, hopefully you could say the same thing about me that I have matured in my faith, that my faith has not just grown um, outward, but it's grown inward for me. It's grown deeper. And I, I believe that it has. I have a better understanding of the scriptures. You know, used to, I was like, well, I'll read as many chapters as I can in a day um, because I want to read through the whole Bible. I remember when I started coming to church, that was my goal. I'm going to read through the whole Bible. Um, and I remember... I was reading Psalms at work and I think I read 50 Psalms in a day because I was like, I got to get through it. That was such a waste of time for me because I retained none of it. Whereas we can take eight verses here now and I can really glean a lot from it. That, that shows me that I, that my faith has deepened. So when he justifies us, it should radically change who we are. And the world, the people that know us, should see a difference in our behavior. Um, and that's kind of what this book is all about. Uh, if you don't believe me, go look over in First John because uh, he, all of these themes are repeated there. Christianity isn't just a faith. It's a life. It's not just a power that I put my hope in, but... I put my real faith into action through application and you get a real life. Put your real faith into action through application and you'll get a real life. You'll see that a life has been changed, not through legalism, not through conduct, but through the power and righteousness of Jesus Christ. A faith proves it's alive by what it does. Let me, let me say that again. If you're going to write something down, write this down. A faith proves that it is alive by what it does, but it's also dead by what, what it doesn't do. It's also dead by what it does not do. So James is saying that trials always lead to the one who is willing to consider it joy in the midst of it. It will always lead to a purging and a purifying of the faith. You know, people ask, where is God in the midst of trials? You know, they'll be going through something. Where is God? He's right there. He's right in the middle of it. He's teaching and he's purifying those who are his children. So how can I count it all joy? Because I know that at the end of all of this, I'll be closer to Jesus. I'll realize that when I go through a trial that strips me of everything and I realize that Jesus is the only thing that I have left, I'll also realize that Jesus is all I ever needed. You don't find that out really any other way than going through trials, just to be quite frank. And we can have confidence that when he, if you're a child of his, if you are one of his children, and he puts you through a trial, you can have confidence knowing that it will that work will be complete. 
because the scriptures tell us he who began a good work in us will finish it. So let's um let's look over into uh, verse five verses five through seven. It says, "If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives it to all liberally, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind." For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we got a a little bit to unpack here. James says first, I'm going to go back so we can see it. He says first to ask for wisdom. So what does Proverbs say about wisdom? Um, Wisdom is the principal thing, right? It's the thing that we should be seeking after. But James goes on to say that we must first be a person, excuse me, we must first be a person of faith. So this is a condition that must be met. Um, If you're going to seek after wisdom, you must be a person of faith. Now, this isn't some name it and claim it thing okay that's that's unbiblical um and we can go over that some other time if you want to but what james is saying is that if you ask for god's wisdom that that you better um that that will be better than anything else that you could ever ask for but god isn't going to give that wisdom to someone he can't trust with it um, just, to, just to put it quite frank. So if you're going to ask for wisdom, you better be growing in your faith to the point to where he can trust you with his wisdom. Now, some people may be thinking, well, that's, um, you know, what's with all the requirements? You know, some, you know, it's, it's grace. It's given to us. So, you know, when we were saved, there wasn't a requirement for salvation, but... You know, that I hear that from people, but that's not entirely true either. Go look at the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures are littered with uh, what we call pre-qualifiers, right? James is just more straightforward about it. Uh, instead of spending an entire chapter on the requirements, he just tells you the basically the end. Um, he's saying that you know, you're going to have to be the kind of person that if you come to God and ask for wisdom, that he's going to give it to you. So you have to be that kind of person. You can't be petitioning to God to give you wisdom and not be um, qualified for it. And then he also says that if you do qualify if you are a person of faith, that he will give it, and he'll give it liberally, okay? Um, That's the promise he gives to us. So let me ask you this, um, because I have to examine my own prayer life, but do you ask God for wisdom when you pray? Now, to to be honest with you, I have started recently, especially since going through this, 
but um, that's filled by the wayside in my prayer life. My prayer life needs work anyway. I should be, you know, that's something I need to work on. But when I do pray and I'm petitioning these things to God, I get so busy with life and I get so caught up in my other list of stuff that I'm, I'm petitioning to him for uh, that I often forget to ask for wisdom. And what I've began to realize is why in the world am I asking God for responsibilities that I'm not able to handle because I lack wisdom? You know, if I'm asking for God's wisdom, uh, I'm sorry, if I'm asking God for, you know, promotion at work or I'm asking God for, you know, some sort of um, position at church or or whatever, you know, and this goes right back into the, the leadership lesson we talked about last week, if I'm, if I'm asking God for these other responsibilities that I'm going to have to take on, but I'm not asking for wisdom, then why, why would he give me that? I'm, I'm not able to handle those responsibilities. So what we should ask for uh, is we should ask for God's wisdom to reign supreme. Because our wisdom isn't very impressive, just to be quite frank. You know, any wisdom that we have, if you ask somebody um, that's mature in their faith, most of the time they'll tell you it's not theirs. You know, this is, um, what I'm teaching is not from me. This is all regurgitated wisdom is what I call it. It, it, This is what I've learned from my teachers and counselors over the years and through my own study, sure. But, But none of this is new information. So any wisdom that comes from me is not good. So we should be asking for God's wisdom to reign over our own. So we should ask God, you know, I've got this decision I have to make about work. Uh, I've got this decision I've got to make about my family. Uh, You know, should I take this job? Should we sell the house? Fill in the blank. But instead, we should be pleading with God, God, grant me your wisdom because my wisdom is flawed. You know, my wisdom when it comes to making big decisions is is sitting down at the table with a piece of paper and writing out a pros and cons list. That's what my wisdom looks like. But you know what's amazing is that a lot of his wisdom can be found in his word. And God doesn't really reply uh, that much to prayers that he's already covered. You know what I mean? Um, Like, if you say... Lord, help me know whether I should steal money from work or Lord, help me know if I should cheat on my wife. You know, no, I've already covered that. <laughs> you know, um, those are extremes. But but if you're begging God to, to show you what his will is for your life in certain circumstances and it's in the word, then why would he, why would he respond with that? It's, it's there. You have to go look for it. You know, he wants us to pursue him and that means pursuing his word. That's where that desire for the word comes from. Because if we desire him and we desire his wisdom, then we'll be diving into his word to find out what that wisdom is and how we can implement it. You know, how we can not just adopt it, but how it can take over. 
So if you're asking God for um, wisdom on something he's already told you or shown you or it's in his word, that's actually lacking wisdom. You know, we talked about that. I think it was maybe even the first class in here about, about fools. What we should be asking for is wisdom on those things that aren't so clear and ask God to reveal if this is his will for your life or not. You know, um, things like your, your, your job or, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, should I buy this car or this car? We need a car, but should I, you know, or, you know, we should be asking for his wisdom. And I'm going to tell you that when you make a decision, you'll know whether it's his will for you or not, because if it is, it will be good. If it's not, it will not go well for you. And I'm saying that from experience. Um, it, it, you know, I normally tend to choose the wrong path there, just to be quite frank with you. And it, I, nor- I normally have to suffer through my decision because I'm like, you know, it's not... I, when I petition for God's wisdom, a lot of times I, I'm saying, okay, God, I know that I'm about to do this thing, so just tell me that it's okay. You know, instead of saying, should I do this? Um, so we need to be seeking after real wisdom. Now, James uh, then tells us that he who asks without faith lacks character. Um, if you look over there, it, he, it's in um, verse 6. But, you know, let him ask in faith with no doubting. Or he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. I mean, that that's a flaw in someone's character. Um, you look over in, in uh, chapters, or I'm sorry, in verses 7 and 8, it talks about someone who is uh, double-minded. So James is telling us that he who asks, asks for wisdom without faith is has flawed character and and is a double-minded person. So what does that mean? What does double-minded mean? Um, it's someone who is a walking and talking civil war. You know, someone who is at war within themselves. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, we all sort of uh, have these little, I don't want to say arguments with yourself in your mind, but we all have these these conflicts within us, okay? But this He's talking about a specific conflict here. It's a conflict of the spirit. And what I mean by that is part of your mind is pursuing godliness. Part of your mind is uh, is, is focused on God. And it's, your face is turned towards him. But then this other part is still pursuing the world and, and its prestige. You know, so that's what a double-minded person is. Someone who's, who's seeking after God when it's convenient, and then seeking after the world also. It's somebody that hasn't made their mind up yet. You know, uh, somebody that has some things about them that are godly, but then you also have some things that are worldly. Um, and, and we know people like this, right? This is someone that... This is a term we use all the time. This is someone that isn't sold out for Jesus, that isn't 100% sold out for Christ, that hasn't completely decided to follow him, that likes the idea of a Savior without a Lord. This is this is where my 
evangelistic calling is specifically. It's with these people, these folks, this group of people, especially around here in the South, because, you know, if you talk to anyone around here, um, they've been saved three or four times, they got baptized or whatever, but then they're living a life that is fake, um, that shows that their 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 faith is fake, is what I mean. Um, you know, that I got saved, but they're committing adultery or fornicating or stealing or, you know, fill in the blank. They're just living in a carnal state. And again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But we all know somebody like that. That says, oh yeah, I love God. I love the Lord. But, you know, I also love my girlfriend. Or also love, uh, you know, my kids more than I do God. And I show that by what I pursue. So think about somebody like that. Because we all know someone, someone like that. We all know someone like that. Um, Can you trust someone like that? Because God can't, to be just quite frank. God can't trust people uh, like that with his wisdom. That's what he's saying here, is that we're told to love the people of the world, but we're told to hate the things of the world, right? Those things should not draw us more than God does. Now, Solomon laid it out uh, for us pretty plain and simple. He's gone before us, and I don't care if you're, the, you know, the biggest partier in the room or whatever, uh, you know, or how many things you've done. You don't hold a candle to Solomon. I mean, Solomon said, you know, I thought I'd try the world to see if it's good, and I did, and tried everything the world could offer a hundredfold. Women got it money got it prestige got it even intelligence right because he wanted wisdom but he rejected god's wisdom and then he went with his own he said there's nothing you'll ever do that i haven't done and i found that it's like trying to grasp the mist right and one little moment of pleasure you think you got a hold of it and then it vaporizes so what do you do you then have to chase after it again and again and again, and it vaporizes again and again and again. You know, this is the struggle that a lot of addicts go through is, is they get that, that high, whether it be drugs or anything else, you know, um, and, and then it's fleeting. And then, so then they have to chase after it, and it becomes obsessive, and it becomes their God. Then Solomon says that he's come to the end of his life and realizes that this is the whole role of man, right? Fear God and do what he says. Fear God and do what he says. See, that's not double-minded. That makes things easy for me. Um, simple, I should say, would be a better, better term. Now, it might make things difficult for us and how the world responds to what we do but we can rejoice because we know that he's already overcome the world, right? We know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to fear the Lord and do what he says. Plain and simple. Um, is it easy? No. It, it'll be difficult. He never said it was going to be easy. And we won't get into that today. But if you do what he says, it will make things so much easier for you spiritually and eternally to where, you know, God is, 
you can lay up treasures in heaven. Uh, go, go look in the scriptures. And you, and you can also rob yourself of those based on what you do. But, you know, I do understand that when you do what God says, that you do love him and you do what he says, that it's going to, there are going to be trials, right, that the world is going to attack you with because they hate you, you know, but they hated him first. And, they, you know, this is the thing. If you look back in Acts, they actually said uh, after, you know, after the Jews started persecuting them and everybody started trying to kill them and everything, they were like, well, we must be doing something right because they hate us and they're trying to kill us, you know, and that's what they did to him. You know, I mean, if that's the case, then praise God, you're doing something right. Now, people shouldn't hate you because of some sort of uh, personality trait or something like that, you know. But if they hate you because what you're doing is righteous and it, and in turn is showing them their unrighteousness, then you're doing what's right. So let's look at what James says about double-minded people. He says that they are unstable in all their ways. Unstable in all their ways. Now, have you ever had to deal with someone like that? Have you ever been asked about those people? I mean, think about it. If you're a, um, if you're an employer or a supervisor, and someone comes up to you and asks you about someone that works for you, you know, um, or maybe you're over something in the church, or someone's coming to ask you about they're wanting to give somebody a, resp- a responsibility in the church, and they say, "Hey, what about this person?" You're like, mm, you know, mm, they're they're double-minded. You know, those people that are double-minded, you might not say it like that. We're like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. I think they're just a little, you know, unstable. They're, they're, they're all over the road. I don't know that I could trust them. I don't know that I could trust them with what this responsibility. You know, I don't know that I could trust them to be a good representative of our congregation, of our church. You know, I think about with me being a uh, guitar player for church. I know that when I'm up there that I am a representative of our church. So I should take that responsibility seriously. You know, I don't need to be jumping up and down all over the stage and, and you know, making a show because it's not about me. It's about God. And the church is looking at the people who are up pulpit as being a representation of our church you know so before you put somebody in a position where they're going to represent you or Christ for that matter and you are like "Mm, they're a little unstable I don't know I can trust them I don't know that I would entrust them with said responsibility you know he's kind of all over the road I don't really like being around people like that to be quite frank People that that are double-minded, that are unstable, you know, I don't like being around them. Um, it it's uh, it could be dangerous at times, you know. Um, now, I'll help those people, I, but I just I can't attach myself with someone who's all over the road like that, you know. Um, scripture talks a lot about our friends and the relationships that we have. Be careful who you 
are yoked with, you know? I mean, not just in marriage, but in your friendships. My closest friends are Christians. And that's deliberate, right? It's not like, ooh, you're not a Christian. I can't be friends with you. It's, you know, we we don't share the same spirit. So we can't have the same kind of relationship that I could have with someone who I share that spirit with. You know, uh, if, if any of you have watched the um, interview I did with Cameron Pittenger, we talked about this. Cameron and I are very different individuals um, pursuing different avenues in life, but we both love God. We both have a hunger for his word and we share his spirit. So because of that, our relationship, mine and Cameron's relationship is much stronger than anyone else that doesn't have the same spirit. Even sometimes people that I'm related to, you know, um, we talk about this all the time when someone gets saved and we say, you know, you have a new brother or sister in Christ. And that's really what that is. You know, if you have some, if, if, if you have a, a brother or a sister, a blood relative, brother or sister, that is an unbeliever, but you have a friend that is a believer, is a devout follower, they are actually more of your family than your blood relatives are. So, you know, we don't need to attach ourselves to these double-minded people. We need to help them. We need to minister to them. We need to witness to them, absolutely. But just be careful with people when they're wishy-washy with their beliefs. And you'll know they're wishy-washy by what they do, right? By their fruit. So, um, that's it for, for verses 1 through 8. Again, I know... I said we go chapter by chapter, but um, it's been 42 minutes and 15 seconds so far. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, we are going to uh, finish the chapter next week. We're going to go through uh, the rest of it next week. Um, please, if you uh, leave a comment, if, if you have any questions, call me, text me, email me. Uh, again, for those of you watching at home, uh, we'd love to see you in class. Um, if you can't make the class, we completely understand. And I appreciate you guys watching and um, taking the time to uh, listen to me, you know. Uh, but again, I appreciate you. Um, let me know if there's anything we need to pray about. So what I'm, I want to start doing is I want to start closing our classes in prayer. And um, because we need to be one in the spirit. Okay. So let's go to uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the time that you've allowed me to um, deliver the words that that you wanted, Father. I ask that that you help me to refine myself, that you refine me, that you remove all of the impurities and make me more and more a reflection of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, don't let us be double-minded. Let us keep our eyes solely focused on you and put our hand to the plow and never look back. Uh, and let us be constantly be pursuing righteousness, 
your righteousness and your holiness in all our ways. Help us seek after your wisdom. We want to say that we love you and we thank you for all that you've done for us. But most of all, for the the grace and mercy that you've shown us and the love, the demonstration of love that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask and pray these things. Amen. Again, thank you again so much for joining me. Uh, We will see you again next week.